down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more in one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has new to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to look into a curious phenomena known as machine elves. Perhaps you've heard of this. Perhaps you haven't. It's a subject that is fascinating and peculiar. Many psychonauts throughout the course of time have been fascinated by this subject and have studied this phenomenon. And it's actually a series of phenomena, multiple phenomena, not just one phenomenon in particular. There's many facets to this. And tonight we're going to go back to some of the original research delving into this topic. We're going to look in a book titled DMT, The Spirit Molecule, by Dr. Rick Strassman, MD. And this is one of the original scientists who actually initially looked at this whole concept this spirit molecule, as he calls it. And of course, the DMT is also known as dimethyltryptyline. It's a substance, a psychoactive substance, found in, well, some natural substances. It's actually found in small quantities, even in the human body and the human brain. But it's also found in medicinal substances of various sorts and herbs and other kinds of things. And he equated this particular chemical compound with mystical experiences. And this goes way deeper than just the physical side of things because it would seem that many people who have had these these types of experiences, they, they have commonalities to them. And that's what I think is hugely fascinating about this. And it's something that seems external to themselves. And that's where the research gets really fascinating. And of course, Terence McKenna spoke of this prior to Dr. Straussman, but Dr. Straussman is the one who really put this scientifically on the map, this whole study. And it's a fascinating thing. And I think it goes way beyond just this molecule, this DMT molecule that Dr. Straussman was looking at. And I think some of his research will actually show that as we read into this book tonight. We'll see a little bit of something about this. It's a fascinating topic. What exactly are these machine elves, or clockwork elves, they've sometimes been called? And many people have had many different experiences that they describe as this type of phenomena. And does it run deeper than just a psychoactive experience? Is there more to it than just some chemical hit in the brain that causes types of hallucinatory experiences? I think it runs deeper. I think there's a spiritual side to this. There's something else 
out there that perhaps these people have experienced. And this goes not just with the use of psychoactive drugs. Many people have had out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences where they've had similar encounters, and sometimes there were no drugs or anything like that involved. And does it relate to this chemical? It may, it may not. I, I, that's the thing, I don't know. I mean, as far as physical cause and effect, maybe this chemical does play a role in this, but I don't think it's the be-all, end-all of this phenomenon or these experiences that people have. And like I said, the, the fascinating part of it is there's commonalities between these that go way beyond just coincidence. And it goes beyond the component of it's just somebody having a hallucinatory experience. There's something else to it. And many people, many people would consider this type of experience transformative in some way. Life-altering. And many people seek this through the use of illicit drugs, and I don't recommend that. I certainly don't. I think that's a bad idea. And that's a misuse of certain natural substances in this way. But of course, there are people who do seek this out through artificial means in that way and have had experiences. And of course, the research that Dr. Straussman has done here has primarily been through the use of this substance. So that being the case, we're going to look at what he had to say about it here in his own words, because I think it's fascinating. And this subject has piqued my interest on quite a number of occasions, but it's hard to really find material talking about this. You know, outside of places like Joe Rogan broadcast and stuff like that. It's hard to find anybody who will talk about this in a serious light. And even on those types of programs, they don't really talk about it seriously. It's only half serious, and of course they, they add their humor to it. And there's always the drug culture that goes along with it. And that's the thing that really, really turns me off to that type of an interpretation of it, because they always attach this stoner-type mentality to all of it. Now, I'm somebody who's very straight-laced. I don't use any substances like that. My biggest addiction's caffeine, coffee. I can tell you that. That's the only psychochemical compound I use, caffeine, in, in coffee. That's it. So I don't have a vested interest in trying to, I don't know, promote this type of a thing. I'm not looking to try to get people to try and do this. I, I would encourage them, don't. Don't try to use any of these type of substances. I don't think it's actually going to give you the type of spiritual experience that perhaps people claim can come out of it. It's a very misguided thing. A lot of people use it just because, well, they want to feel good and they want to have some type of a trippy type experience and think it's going to expand their mind. But if you're going about it for the wrong reasons and using it for the wrong reasons, and those are always the wrong reasons, then it's not going to be a spiritual experience like you might think. And perhaps there's something darker associated with it. And this is the curious part of all of it, because we have all different kinds of reports of this phenomenon across the board. And if you're not familiar with what this is, what this is is a phenomenon that was popularized when Terence McKenna first talked about it, talking about when he had 
some drug-induced hallucinations. He went on a trip, a drug-addled trip, and he experienced these entities all around and about him. Now, this crosses the borders and the boundaries of various different phenomena that we also talk about at times here, paranormal-type phenomenon, supernatural phenomenon. Ghosts, ETs, very similar experiences reported in abduction experience and perhaps haunting experiences as what's reported in these DMT trips. So Terrence McKenna was the first that really publicly talked about this and opened up the interest in it. And Dr. Straussman's the one that carried out actual scientific research and documented a lot of this. And he came up with a lot of data. And the things that the data showed tend to lean towards there's some exterior phenomena attached to this, that this is not just something that the human brain manufactures in and of itself, that there might be some external component to this. And that's the most fascinating part. So we're going to get into that here. And we're reading from chapter 13 of his book, which is called Contact Through the Veil. And I, I find it interesting, the terminology that Dr. Straussman uses here. Contact Through the Veil, if you've listened to this broadcast for any length of time, you know the connotation attached to the veil and how those ruling class elitists of this world like to manipulate things from behind the veil. That's always how they've operated in these occult fraternities, these secret schools. They operate from behind the veil. So this gives the connotation that there's something to look at here behind the veil. And what does he mean by the veil? Well, this is the veil that separates the spiritual world from the material world. And we can see perhaps some of the machinations of what goes on in these invisible worlds through the use of not only this substance, but through various other psychoactive components and also through near-death experiences and sometimes just unexplainable phenomena. For no apparent reason, sometimes people have experiences like this. But let's go ahead and we'll read what Dr. Straussman says here. So he starts off here in this chapter of the book with a little caveat here, and he says, The material in this and the next chapter is the most unusual and difficult to understand. It is the weirdest and the easiest for me to skirt when people ask, What did you find? When reviewing my bedside notes, I continually feel surprised in seeing how many of our volunteers made contact with them or other beings. At least half did so in one form or another. Research subjects used expressions like entities, beings, aliens, guides, and helpers to describe them. The life forms looked like clowns, reptiles, mantises, bees, spiders, cacti, and stick figures. It is still startling to see my written records of comments like, these were, or there were these beings. I was being led. They were on me fast. It's as if my mind refuses to accept what's there in black and white. 
It may be that I have such a hard time with these stories because they challenge the prevailing worldview and my own. Our modern approach to reality relies upon waking consciousness and its extensions of tools and instruments as the only ways of knowing. If we can't see, hear, smell, taste, or touch things in our everyday state of mind, or using our technology-amplified senses, it's not real. Thus, these are non-material beings. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So what Dr. Strassman is trying to communicate here is people have claimed to have made contact with these other beings, these non-material beings, non-corporeal beings, through their trip that they had using this substance. And he finds it fascinating. Many of them have had the same type commonalities, the same ways of expressing what it is they've experienced. And the problem with it is there's no way to objectively quantify this thing, therefore making it not something that can be easily understood in our materialist worldview. Now, we've often on this program talked about some of the belief systems of the occult fraternities, the secret societies, these mystery schools and the things they teach about what they claim is on the other side, in the spirit realms, in the other worlds attached to this one and interpenetrating through this material world in which we live, that we have these various layers of existence and experience. And they claim sometimes some of their adepts attain these abilities to clairvoyantly see into these other causative worlds and have experiences similar to this. So things described here are very much what many who claim to have been able to perform feats like astral projection and such things from many of these secret society groups and occult fraternities they're, they're explaining and describing some of the same things that they've mapped out through the course of centuries and millennia within these secret groups, these esoteric groups. So it seems to me we have a common factor here with this stuff. And many people will claim that all of the secrets of the mystery schools and stuff are all derived from drug use. And that's what they've truly experienced there and that's what they've passed down and it's through the use of these illicit substances that they've had these psychomatic or psychonautic experiences or these kind of things that's what some people claim but in my view i think they're missing the point it's not about this material world and a material cause and effect type of situations here there's something more to it. It runs way deeper than that. And I think these people are missing the whole point when they're making those claims. And I think they're making those claims unfoundedly. And a lot of that's based upon this work that Dr. Straussman has done. Because he's nailed down one particular substance here, this DMT, that can cause these types of effects within people, can cause them to have these experiences, or so it would seem. But does that mean that it's strictly a physical, material world phenomenon, and it's just the chemical interactions of the brain? 
Not necessarily. I think there's more to it, as we'll see here, as we go through the rest of this reading here tonight. So Dr. Straussman continues here, and he says, In contrast, indigenous cultures are in regular contact with denizens of the invisible landscape and have no problems with straddling both worlds. Often they do this with the aid of psychedelic plants. Many modern-day scientists possess an abiding faith in the spiritual. However, these same scientists are caught in a profound conflict between their personal and professional beliefs. What they say and what they feel may contradict each other profoundly. It is difficult to be objective about matters of the heart and spirit. Scientists may compartmentalize their faith and can't conceive of verifying or validating their spiritual intuition. In other cases, they may water down the nature of those beliefs to maintain some consistency with their intellectual understanding. Perhaps they simply ignore the presence of angels and demons in essential scriptures or regard them as symbolic or as hallucinatory manifestations of an overactive religious imagination. Lack of open dialogue about these issues makes it much more difficult to even imagine enlarging our view of the reality of non-material realms using scientific methods. What would happen to the study of spirit realms if we could access them reliably using molecules like DMT? So, going to pause for a moment there, folks. So, Dr. Straussman was seriously questioning, what if we can use this psychoactive substance to access these different worlds? What if there really is a spirit world there? What would this mean for our reality? And how can we perhaps use this tool to study these realms and learn about them and see what else is out there? You see, he's correct here in his assumptions he's made. It's hard for some scientific mind to objectively measure these type of things or analyze them in that way. It's hard for them to separate their own spiritual beliefs from the physical cause and effect measurement system of our modern science. So there's not really much of a way where you could reliably, objectively measure these types of things or examine them. It's all subjective, and that's the problem. So what has to be done would be a subjective type of mapping of these exterior invisible worlds. And that's making assumptions here. And that's part of the problem because in the realm of science, you can't make assumptions. At least that's what they'll tell you, although they use assumptions all the time in the things that they call science these days. But based upon what Dr. Straussman is saying here, in an experiment of this kind, you can't really make the assumption that, first of all, these spirit worlds do exist and that you can access them through the use of this DMT molecule. Making that assumption in and of itself becomes problematic in a scientific experiment. So he's taking a kind of leap of faith here. And what he's doing is he's just recording data. And that's probably one of the best things you could do with something like this. Even though it's subjective data, if enough of the subjective data aligns together, it forms a pattern. And if it forms a pattern, then you can use tools of pattern recognition to find commonalities, and then maybe you have something. Maybe that proves something. Maybe it doesn't. 
The problem becomes, what does it prove if it does prove something? Does it prove that there are these external, invisible, spiritual realms all around us, and that there are entities that perhaps inhabit these worlds? Or does it just simply prove that the human brain, when the right chemicals are pumped into it, can cause hallucinatory experiences of this sort? You see, this is where objectivity and subjectivity become problematic. They can't be resolved between the two of them. Because although you're measuring a subjective experience and recording a subjective experience, it's not giving you an accurate measure of things. It's not proving anything. Let's put it that way. It doesn't really prove the point. You have to make an assumption in order for there to be some type of a point of interest to draw from. So making those assumptions is non-scientific in and of itself. So it makes a scientific analysis of this very difficult at best. So let's go back to it here. So Dr. Schausman says, in addition to questions regarding the existence of non-material or spiritual worlds, we also must consider expanding the notion of what we may perceive in them. Can our spiritual and religious structures encompass what truly resides within these different levels of existence? The stories we're about to hear go beyond reasonably straightforward encounters with the divine or angels, nor are they especially neat, tidy, or in accordance with what we consider within the realm of expectable spiritual experiences. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So what he's saying is a lot of these don't necessarily align with what you might think they would align with based upon your religious or spiritual views. And it's truly a fascinating thing, and I think that this notion in and of itself proves that there is some phenomenon at play here, or multiple phenomena at play. And perhaps these spiritual worlds, should they truly exist, and as a little side note here, I most certainly think they do exist, do they have the look and feel that we would expect them to have? Are they inhabited with the beings or entities we'd expect? What he's saying here is a lot of these things don't align with what you might think they would. It doesn't look like you would expect, based upon common spiritual or religious beliefs, that many of the encounters here and experiences that have been recorded don't seem to have that kind of, that kind of taxonomy to them. Let's put it that way. So let's go ahead and we'll continue reading and perhaps we'll see what some of these experiences were here. So Dr. Straussman says, I'm hopeful that these reports will accelerate interest in the non-material realms using whatever intellectual, intuitive, and technological tools we possess. Once there is enough interest in and even demand for information about them, such phenomena might become an acceptable topic for rational inquiry. Ironically, we may have to rely more upon science, especially the freewheeling fields of cosmology and theoretical physics, than on our more conservative religious traditions for satisfactory models and explanations of these spirit world experiences. So I'm going to pause again there. So this tells me Dr. Straussman was truly interested in perhaps trying to find out information about these spirit worlds, or mapping out these spirit worlds, trying to figure out what's there, maybe analyze data, and see what we can find that goes beyond 
coincidence, forms a pattern. And when you can form a pattern or see a pattern emerge, you get a better clue as to what's really there or behind it. So he's making the assumption that these spirit worlds do exist. And that's what he's recording the data from. So that's his take on it. And that's his interest in actually doing this is because he wanted to find out more about the spiritual side of things, more so than the physical side. But the problem has been since he published this book and since a lot of this stuff has become public, the mainstream media and to a lesser degree some of the alternative media, which basically at this point is pretty mainstream media as well, they kind of, kind of tried to paint this with the paintbrush that basically all these experiences are is it's a drug-induced hallucination and there's a physical material world cause for these things and there's nothing more to it than that. You see, they pin down this molecule that they know is related to it and various things within brain chemistry and the chemistry of the central nervous system that can reproduce some of these effects so therefore it's nothing more than a pleasant side effect of some physical material world cause and that's a good enough explanation for them and that's what's been heavily promoted in mainstream media and of course this has been picked up on in various forms and has been popularized through what you would call I guess stoner culture where stoners kind of uh, giggle about this stuff and think it's all fascinating and great. And it doesn't really get a serious consideration. And that, I think, is a shame, and I think that's not what Dr. Straussman was looking for. But that's what's been done. So a lot of this has been presented in a way where it's kind of comic relief and it does, it's not taken seriously. And it's become part of stoner culture, and it's been laughed at. And, of course, you have guys like Alex Jones going on Joe Rogan and talking about machine elves and stuff and saying a lot of things that sound totally ridiculous about it. And it gets laughed off, and it's considered to be nonsense. It's turned into a little subculture kind of a thing where perhaps people get stoned out of their minds and compare experiences while they're stoned out of their minds and have a little bit of a laugh at it and don't think anything more of it because they know, they, they've been told that there's nothing to this. There's not a spiritual component to it. It's all just a physical thing. It's all just your reaction to the drugs. And then some have doubled down and claimed that that's all that any of this secret society stuff and these occult teachings and stuff has ever been about is about illicit drug use. I've had people contact me and say, my dude, it's just what they're all talking about. It's, it just has to do with shrooms, man. It's all derived from shrooms. That's all they're talking about with this stuff. That's what all the spiritual experiences and everything are. I'm not kidding. I've had people it's like send me emails and messages and stuff like that when they hear me talking about secret society groups and the Illuminati and all of these different mystical teachings that they have. So they're telling me that's at the heart of all of it. So it's just this physical 
material world cause and effect thing. And it's just about psychoactive drugs. And I don't think that's correct. There's much more to it than that. There is a whole spiritual side and component to it. But this is what's been pushed and promoted through alt-media as well as through mainstream media. So you have all these different views of this subject, and it's not taken seriously at all. I don't think anybody's taken any more scientific measures to studying this phenomena any deeper than Dr. Straussman here. It's kind of got laughed off of the, the stage. Let's put it that way. And I think there's a reason for that. And it has to do with, of course, like everything else, some of these occult teachings of these secret society groups and occult fraternities. I think it has to do with perhaps some of the things they claim to know. And it has to do with some of their future plans for humanity and learning how to invoke in the physical, material plane here different experiences in the human brain, which, by the way, in my estimation, the human brain is not one-on-one -on -one equivalent with the human mind. In my view, in my estimation, from the things I've seen and studied and experienced and looked at, the human brain, the human central nervous system, is kind of like a radio tuner. Use the radio analogy here understand you turn the you tune the radio to a certain frequency band and you pick up the station well that's kind of what i think the brain works like it's the receiver and it picks up your spiritual frequency on there and you can change the little bandwidth of the receiver around and maybe sometimes you could pick up static or you could pick up other channels for a brief time think of the old-fashioned radios with the little tuner dial it's a good analogy for what I think consciousness is and what mind truly is. works differently. It's not just a side effect of the brain and brain stem. An electrochemical reaction of the brain and brain stem, as those in the material world paradigm would have you believe, those within the scientific community would have you believe, works differently than that. But we have these different psychoactive components that can help to maybe adjust the tuner to pick up other stations at some point. And I think that may be what goes on with something like this phenomenon. And I find that truly fascinating, but most people miss the point on that, because, like I said, this subject has been more or less mocked and ridiculed and portioned off into a, a box of its own where it's not taken seriously, and the scientific study of this has been put on the back burner. And nobody's pursuing it. And I see this with a lot of different things, not just this. As a little side tangent, when I was young, when I was a kid, I was always interested in the paranormal and in the supernatural and in all kinds of phenomena like that. And I had wanted at one time to become a parapsychologist, but very few universities offered courses in parapsychology. And you know what? There's even fewer of them today that offer any such thing, and there's very few jobs 
for any type study like that. This is also something that I think has gotten ridiculed and put on the back burner for various reasons, and I think it has everything to do with some of these dark occultists who run things in this world. Perhaps they don't want people to explore some of the things that they have documented in some of their older works. And most certainly they have, folks. They have books talking about the landscape of some of these invisible worlds and the inhabitants thereof. And as we continue here, maybe at some point down the road I'll go back and look at some of those things from the occult fraternities and we'll compare notes here with what Dr. Straussman has said and what these psychonauts using DMT to explore these realms have said, and we'll see how they align, because I think you'll find some interesting parallels. And I think this has to do with why they've tried to subject this topic to the waste bin of ridicule, and why they've used it as a platform for the ridiculous. And they've used it as a means to further push this notion of stoner culture. And that's a real thing, and that has to do with the whole arrested development ideology as well. They don't want people to advance themselves spiritually or intellectually. Why do you think they legalized marijuana? Don't get me wrong, it does have a lot of great medicinal uses, but largely it sedates people makes them happy and you know they have their little experience on it where they they feel a little giddy and perhaps they think they've had some kind of an epiphany or something or they come up with some good ideas while they're on it and you know maybe they eat something and take a nap and, and it's all good from there but uh, it, why do you think they've normalized that because in my view I think the use of these type of psychoactive chemicals to induce that type of a state in people has actually stunted people spiritually and in their ability to perhaps comprehend and or analyze these different spiritual experiences and components of things. And it's normalized the idea that, well, drugs make you hallucinate and have... Uh, these different weird feelings and stuff like that. And that's the only cause and effect sequence that there is with it, that there's nothing spiritual associated with it. It's purely a physical phenomenon. That's what they've normalized here. But something like this, research like this that Dr. Straussman has done, this goes beyond that. This proves there's something more out there. There are these spiritual realms out there. And there are inhabitants in these realms or intelligences. And these things have been experienced by multiple people in multiple different states, not just through the use of psychoactive drugs, but that's largely what's been involved with the research here. And he analyzed this chemical, DMT, dimethyltryptyline, and found that it has these properties in some people to elicit this type of an experience. So he was pondering here. Can we regularly 
and with predictability, induce these types of experiences in people and map out that terrain. That was his whole intention here. He wanted to map out these spiritual realms. He wanted to see what's on the other side. And this is some of the data he came up with, and I find it fascinating because, as you'll see, it doesn't necessarily align with what you would think it would. And secondly, it shows that there's quite possibly, and in fact probably, something more to this. Something external to the person. So it's not something that's just an effect within themselves. That there's something external to it. So let's go ahead. I'm going to read on here. So he said, I had expected to hear about some of these types of experiences once we began giving DMT. I was familiar with Terence McKenna's tales of the self-transforming machine elves he encountered after smoking high doses of the drug. Interviews conducted with 20 experienced DMT smokers before beginning the New Mexico research also yielded some tales of similar meetings. Since most of these people were from California, I admittedly chalked up these stories to some kind of West Coast eccentricity. Therefore, I was neither intellectually nor emotionally prepared for the frequency with which contact with beings occurred in our studies, nor the often utterly bizarre nature of these experiences. Neither, it seemed, were many of the volunteers, even those who had smoked DMT previously. Also surprising were the common themes of what these beings were doing with so many of our volunteers. Manipulating, communicating, showing, helping, questioning. It was definitely a two-way street. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. Now this is an interesting bit of data in and of itself. So he's saying it was definitely a two-way street. So now he's saying there was definitely a second factor involved with this. This is not just what would happen with the use of an illicit substance. So there's something else to it. There's another component here. Let's read on. As strange as the reports that follow are, our 1990s research was not the first in the scientific literature to describe DMT-induced contact. There also are reports from the 1950s quoting volunteers to that effect. These older DMT cases are remarkable in their foreshadowing of the stories we were going to hear almost 40 years later. What is even more striking is that I have been unable to locate any similar reports in research subjects taking other psychedelics. Only with DMT do people meet up with them, with the other beings in a non-material world. So I'm going to pause again here, folks. So now what he's telling us is with 40 years difference in the studies... They're finding commonalities. That goes beyond just being coincidental. So perhaps we need to consider there's something to this. And like I said, this is a fascinating topic, and it should be taken a little more seriously than it has been. And nobody's really doing the research that I'm aware of. Nobody's trying to do much of anything with it. They just, like I said, laugh it off. It's been ridiculed into a little box of the stoner subculture. And that's that. And here we are.
But anyway, let's read on. So he says, These older clinical excerpts derive from patients with schizophrenia, many of whom had been hospitalized for years, if not decades. They were not especially verbal, insightful, or personable. They received DMT in studies attempting to determine how similar the DMT state was to schizophrenia. Researchers also were interested in gauging whether naturally psychotic patients with more or less sensitive were more or less sensitive to DMT's effects. A patient with schizophrenia in a study at Steven Zazara's former laboratory in Hungary reported the following after a high dose of intramuscular DMT. Quote, I saw such strange dreams, but at the beginning only. I saw strange creatures, dwarves or something. They were black and moved about, end quote. And I'm going to pause for a moment right there. So once again, I also find the connection to schizophrenia an absolutely fascinating facet of this as well. Is there something to that? Is there something to that? Is there a connection between perhaps this psychoactive component, DMT, and schizophrenia, and or these experiences? It's a hugely fascinating topic. There's many things that aren't understood about schizophrenia in our modern psychology and psychiatry. In fact, it's mostly not understood. Mostly. <laughs> That's the sad part of it all. And of course, it relates to other things as well. Other conditions as well. Not unremarkably. Conditions like autism. Yes, there's a relationship there between schizophrenia and autism. So this kind of gives a little bit of a deeper connotation to things when you're looking at this DMT component of it all here as well. But anyway, let's continue back here. So that was the experience of a schizophrenic patient on DMT. This was from the 1950s research. An American research team also gave DMT to patients with schizophrenia. Of the nine subjects, the only one who could say anything about her experience was an unfortunate woman who, after getting a robust dose of 1.25 milligrams per kilogram, IM DMT, stated, quote, I was in a big place, and they were hurting me. They were not human. They were horrible. I was living in a world of orange people, end quote. Insert Trump joke here. <laughs> orange people. Uh, but uh, in it, anyway, I'm going to pause there for a second. I had to get the, the Trump joke in there. But uh, at any rate, we see the similarities between something like this and some of the reports of alien abduction phenomena. So you see how there's this crossover. So maybe there's something more to this. Maybe it's just not a drug-addled hallucination after all. Maybe there's something else there happening. Let's read on. These little vignettes should keep us from becoming too complacent in believing that what our volunteers reported is purely a New Age 1990s in Santa Fe phenomenon. The spirit molecule revealed unseen worlds and their inhabitants to Western science long before our research began. Carl's early encounter with life forms, like his visions of DNA described in the last chapter, offered a prelude to future, more elaborate stories from other volunteers. Carl was a 45-year-old blacksmith. He was married to Elena, whose enlightenment experience we'll read about later. 
Eight minutes into his non-blind high-dose injection, he described this encounter. Quote, That was real strange. There were a lot of elves. They were prankish, ornery. Maybe four of them appeared at the side of a stretch of interstate highway I travel regularly. They commanded the scene. It was their terrain. They were about my height. They held up placards showing me these incredibly beautiful, complex, swirling geometric scenes in them. One of them made it impossible for me to move. There was no issue of control. They were totally in control. They wanted me to look. I heard a giggling sound. The elves laughing, laughing or talking at high-speed volume, chattering, twittering, end quote. In the last chapter, we heard about Aaron's experiences of unseen worlds. Let's return to his first non-blind high dose of DMT. He looked at me about ten minutes after the injection and shrugged, laughing, and said here, quote, First, there was a mandala-like series of visuals, fleur-de-lis-type visions. Then an insect-like thing got right into my face, hovering over me as the drug was going in. This thing sucked me out of my head into outer space. It was clearly outer space, a black sky with millions of stars. I was in a very large waiting room or something. It was very long. I felt observed by the insect thing and others like it. Then they lost interest. I was taken into space and looked at, end quote. And then Dr. Strassman says Aaron summarized his encounters with these beings after a subsequent double-blind high dose. Quote, There is a sinister backdrop, an alien-type insectoid. Not quite pleasant side of this, isn't there? It's not a we're-going-to-get-you. It's more like being possessed. During the experience, there is a sense of someone or something else there taking control. It's like you have to defend yourself against them, whoever they are. But they certainly are there. I'm aware of them, and they're aware of me. It's like they have an agenda. It's like walking into a different neighborhood. You're really not quite sure what the culture is. It's got such a distinct flavor, the reptilian being or beings that are present, end quote. So once again, I'm going to pause for a second here. Just to point out, it does sound very much like alien abduction phenomena stories, doesn't it? So we have these crossovers with this subject. So you would think something like this would be taken a little more seriously than it is, but apparently it hasn't. And like I said, I do suspect there's reasons for this. But let's continue. So he says, how about the scary element, I asked? What's the worst they could do if they are unleashed with access to you? And then this Aaron answers. He says, that's what it's about. It's the sense of the possibility that's so strange. And Dr. Straussman says, in a later chapter, we'll read about the physical problems Lucas encountered after his high-dose session. However, it's interesting to review part of a letter he wrote to us a few days after that experience. I'm going to pause for a second before we read Lucas's experience here. I would recommend pick up this book and give it a read if you're truly interested in hearing some of these case studies about this, because this is just a portion of it that I found that I think gives a good broad overview of some of the commonalities in these cases. And of course, he goes through in different portions of this book and talks about different personal experiences many people have had. 
But this, I think, gives a good general overview for people as to what it is these people claim to experience with this machine elf phenomena, or clockwork elves, as they're sometimes called. So now this Lucas gives this explanation here, this description in a letter that he wrote a few days later. He says here, quote, There is nothing that can prepare you for this. There is a sound, a buzz sound. It started off and got louder and louder and faster and faster. I was coming on and coming on and then pow. There was a space station below me and to my right. There were at least two presences, one on either side of me, guiding me to a platform. I was also aware of many entities inside the space station, automatons, android-like creatures that looked like a cross between crash dummies and the Empire troops from Star Wars, except that they were living beings, not robots. They seemed to have checkerboard patterns on parts of their bodies, especially their upper arms. They were doing some kind of routine technological work and paid no attention to me. In a state of overwhelmed confusion, I opened my eyes. End quote. It was at this point in room 531 that Lucas's heart rate and blood pressure plummeted to nearly unrecordable levels. We will read about Carlos's shamanic death rebirth experience elicited by his first non-blind high dose of DMT in chapter 15. During one of his high dose sessions, he also met beings who tried to help him with his anxiety. And this is from this Carlos. Quote, There's this whole different world with architecture and landscape. I saw one or two beings there. The beings even have gender. The skin was not flesh-colored. I communicated with them, but there wasn't enough time. I was so strung out, excited, agitated when I arrived there. They wanted to try and reduce my anxiety so we could relate. End quote. So I'm going to pause again here. So we have sometimes these experiences seem kind of dark or sinister. And then there's other times where they seem like they're more friendly with people or trying to guide people for whatever reason. And I find it intriguing that there's so many references to space and space stations and stuff like that. Truly a fascinating thing. So we do see a lot of crossover between this and other areas of research that I think also need to be taken seriously. But oftentimes, oftentimes they're not taken seriously because they've turned the research into the alien abduction phenomenon into a circus. They've turned this research into a circus and they've turned research into the paranormal or ghost-type phenomena, anything considered the spiritual side of things, into a three-ring circus as well. They make it laughable. They make it not serious. They make it sound as if it's ridiculous to even try to pursue such avenue of thought. So that case, we see here all of these different things. It's interesting that we have these commonalities between all of them, though. Let's continue here. So he says, Gabe, whose transport into a nursery or playroom we read about in the last chapter, felt an even greater sense of care and concern from the spirits, 
during his first high-dose DMT session. He says, quote, There was an initial sense of panic. Then the most beautiful colors coalesced into beings. There were lots of beings. They were talking to me, but they weren't making a sound. It was more as if they were blessing me. The spirits of life were blessing me. They were saying that life was good. At first it felt like I was going through a cave or a tunnel or into space at a fast rate, definitely. I felt like a ball hurtling down to wherever it was, end quote. So I'm going to pause for a moment there. Just to point out that a lot of this sounds a lot like near-death experiences for some people, doesn't it? The whole tunnel situation where you're hurtling down a tunnel, a long tunnel, and sometimes you feel anxiety and sometimes you feel a sense of comfort or as if you're being blessed in some way. Let's read on here. Many volunteers' encounters with life forms in these non-material worlds involved the powerful sense of an exchange of information. The type of information varied widely. Sometimes it concerned the biology of these beings. Chris was 35 years old, married, and a computer salesman. He was quite artistically talented, too, and performed in local theater productions. He had taken psychedelics 50 to 60 times before starting our research. He hoped his DMT sessions with us would, quote, propel me into a state of awareness I have been seeking during eight years of LSD use, but have only had glimpses of previously, end quote. His non-blind high dose was the most reassuring experience of my life, he says. The separation of his mind and body was effortless, and he decided that if death is like this, there's nothing to worry about. Chris returned for the tolerance study a few weeks later. He lifted the eye shades after the first dose and said, quote, There was a set of many hands. They were feeling my eyes and face. It was a little bit confusing. There were more individuals. They were recognizing and identifying me. It was more intimate. At first I thought it was the eye shades on my face, but it definitely was not, end quote. Filling out the rating scale, he added, quote, To get to that space, I had to get through some sort of a non-benevolent space. It felt like there were talons and claws there trying to guard it in a way, end quote. These were long mornings, and he needed encouragement. I let my intuition guide me. If need be, let them rip you to shreds, then you can get on with it. And he says, quote, dismemberment is part of the shamanic initiation, isn't it? I felt a dragon-like presence, and there were the same colors, red, golden, yellows, end quote. The colors can be like a drape or a prelude or a curtain. Even though they're so pretty, you can get through them to the other side. Coming out of his second dose, he looked stunned, and he grasped for words that seemed inadequate. And this is what he said. He said it was wild. There were no colors. There, were, there was the usual sound, pleasant, a roar, a sort of internal hum. Then there were three beings, three physical forms. There were rays coming out of their bodies and then back to their bodies. They were reptilian and humanoid, trying to make me understand, not with words, but with gestures. They wanted me to look into their bodies. I saw inside them and understood reproduction. 
what it's like before birth, the passage into the body. Once I established what they were communicating, they didn't just fade away. They stayed there for quite a while. Their presence was very solid. End quote. So I'm going to pause there just to point out a couple more interesting things. So, of course, this does have that whole reptilian-type association with it. Once again, the alien abduction phenomena being closely related to this in many ways. And, of course, we have, he says here about the usual sound, a pleasant roar and then a sort of an internal hum. This is something that is claimed to be commonplace by those who claim to experience astral projection. When their body gets into the relaxed state, they have this tingling sensation and this humming noise that overtakes them before their astral form can separate from their physical body. This is something that's reported And this also seems to be associated with this DMT trip that this guy had. So is there more to it than just the illicit substance itself? I think there is. But anyway, let's continue on. So he said he had been hearing about lots of encounters by then and could at least validate his experience. You wouldn't expect it. And then he says, I try and program it, and I go in with an idea of what to see, but I just can't. I thought I was developing tolerance, but then, bang, there were these three guys, or three things. He looked awkward, talking about his experience. I empathized with his perplexity, saying, it does sound odd. It sure does. I wasn't sure, as I was lifting my eye shades, if I wanted to talk to you about it. Chris's third dose was relatively uneventful. He stayed aware of his body, his heart beating in his chest, his stomach growling from hunger, his fourth dose built upon the themes of the previous three, and concluded with many features of a mystical experience. So I'm going to pause here before we relate this Chris Fellow's mystical experience and point out that it seemed like there were common themes between each of his trips. Now, would this be the case if this is something that is simply drug-induced and he was trying to shape his experiences himself, admittedly here, and had no success in doing so? So you need to understand there's something deeper going on here. Like I said, I've been fascinated by this topic for a long time. I think it's interesting the way it crosses over all these different thresholds of sorts. There's this connection to the alien abduction phenomenon, there's a a connection to near-death experiences, and to astral travel, astral projection, various things. So I don't think it's a coincidence. And I think perhaps this DMT can induce sort of watered-down version of this in some people. And in others, they can have quite an experience of it all. So it's fascinating to see. And I don't think it's simply because of the use 
of the substance. Maybe that does break down some barriers in some ways. But I think there's something deeper that happens with this. Let's read on. So now we're going to talk, we're going to read about this Chris, his mystical experience. And this is him speaking. He says, quote, They were trying to show me as much as possible. They were communicating in words. They were like clowns or jokers or jesters or imps. There were just so many of them doing their funny little thing. I settled into it. I was incredibly still, and I felt like I was in an incredibly peaceful place. Then there was a message telling me that I had been given a gift, that this space was mine and I could go there any time. I should feel blessed to have form, to live. It went on forever. There were blue hands fluttering things, then thousands of things flew out of those blue hands. I thought, what a show. It was really healing. It was part of me, not separate. It was a reassurance that this wouldn't go away, that it was mine, that a connection had been made. The whole thing was really crucial to my spiritual development. It's what I tried to do with LSD, a sort of self-initiation. With LSD, it worked in some ways and didn't in others, end quote. And I'm going to pause there just to point out that this Chris fellow tried using other illicit substances to further his spiritual development. And I think the use of illicit substances, drugs of any sort, even DMT, to try to further your spiritual development is a bad idea. A bad idea. I don't think these things are intended to help you with that. I do find it fascinating, though, the way that they've been able to research some of this and record this data, and that people have had these experiences. Now, are they legitimate experiences? Who could say for sure? I think there's something to it. And are these alleged entities they're encountering, are they being straight with people? Or are they manipulating people in certain ways or to think in certain ways or believe certain things? Once again, it's one of those things, it's hard to say for sure what's going on here. And I do reserve the right to be totally wrong about all of these things. But I don't think using illicit drugs to try to induce a spiritual state in yourself is a good idea. And I don't think you're going to get there through that type of methodology. It's a shortcut for people. In my estimation, when you're on a spiritual path, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts. And if there is a shortcut, there's a reason for that, and there's something that comes with that. There's a price to be paid because of that. And maybe we'll hear a little bit of something about that as we continue here. But let's see what other data... Dr. Straussman has for us. He says, Stranger yet are stories of procedures, more or less intrusive, performed by the life forms of these non-material worlds upon our volunteers during their DMT intoxication. Jim, a 37-year-old schoolteacher, was a volunteer who didn't like to talk much about his experiences. During his tolerance study, we talked about going further through the bright colors, which he admitted were distracting him. 
He felt there might be beings behind the colors, and I encouraged him to see if there were. After emerging from his last dose, he said almost offhandedly and with little emotion, quote, I went with them as you suggested. There were clinical researchers probing into my mind. There were sort of long fiber optic things that they were putting into my pupils, end quote. This was years after we had stopped using the pupil measuring card, so it had nothing to do with what was happening in room 531. I asked Jim what that was like for him, and he said, It was pretty weird, but I figured it was just the drug, end quote. And I'm going to pause again there. So as you see, this Jim person seems to think it was all because of the drug. It was just the drug. And he seemed to attach no spiritual significance to this. It was just a material world physical cause and effect sequence that he equated down to nothing more than the drug. So some people have deeper experiences and some don't. But a lot of the point here is we see how this collection of data, we have these commonality of experiences. And of course, the researchers here were trying to guide people through these experiences. You see, one of the big things with this DMT, it seems, is one of the first phases, you'll experience this color, this shifting of colors, uh, this colored veil that you need to pass through in order to maybe experience these beings. So you see these colors. Now, this is where I'm going to make some connections here, connect some dots. If you look at the research and the recordings of some of the occult fraternities and secret society groups, when they talk about these invisible worlds and being able to see into these invisible worlds, the things that they describe, it has to do with different colors, what different colors mean. Like you will see these different colors first before you're able to discern anything else beyond that. And they make these various descriptions, and it crosses the bounds here, and it kind of aligns with what's being described here. So you have Dr. Straussman and these other researchers trying to guide people through this process, because they will, at first, after they take this drug, they'll experience those colors. And is this perhaps attuning the mind to this different frequency, to one of these spiritual realms, in which the occultists claim... If you have this spiritual sight, this type of clairvoyance, to see into some of these other realms, you'll begin to see first scintillating colors of various types, and you'll be able to observe scintillating colors and people's astral forms or etheric forms or whichever realm you're looking into will have various colors about them, and you can know some things based upon those colors. This is all recorded very much in books about thought forms, put out by the Theosophical Society, and about the Invisible Worlds, put out by various of the different groups. The Rosicrucians have some books talking about this. The Theosophists have several books. If you look up, uh, Annie Besant talks about some of this. Wynne Westcott talks about some of this stuff. You have various books that talk about the allegedibility of their clairvoyance or their their mediums to be able to see into these other worlds. 
and be able to experience some of these other worlds. And they've actually gone through the process, through some of these occult fraternities, of trying to map out the landscape of the astral plane. And perhaps we'll go through that. I think I talked about that book, The Astral Plane, on an old broadcast I did a long time back. Perhaps we'll take another look at that and see what's said about that and if there's commonalities between what's being described there and what's being described here by the DMT experiencers. But one of the connections, one of the dots I see that connects these things is this color, this veil of color that they have to pass through in order to have these experiences. So is there something to it? I mean, the, the preponderance of evidence would tell me, based upon a lot of the other stuff I've looked at, that there may be some truth to some of this, and that perhaps these sessions, these sessions are showing some data points that could connect these dots. So I don't know how clued into the occult teachings and stuff Dr. Straussman may have been, if he was at all, but he seems to be verifying some of the things said by the theosophists and others if you go back a hundred years or more. So I find this fascinating, and that's the thing about this topic that I, I find the most intriguing. So you have to begin to ask more questions about this. And the thing is, this was done in a scientific setting. And his purpose for doing this was to try to map out these regions. So I find it fascinating here. And of course, he's talking here about blind and non-blind sessions. I think what he means by that is the person was either unaware they were being given the actual substance or not, or they, they knew they were being given DMT, or they were be, being given placebo in the, the blind studies. They were either being given placebo or the DMT, and they didn't know which that they got. And the non-blind, they knew right away what they were getting. They were getting DMT in what dose. I think that's what's meant by that for anybody who's interested in the specifics of it. But I would recommend go back, read through the book if you want a little bit more of the information. And I think Dr. Straussman actually published various articles in scientific journals about this stuff, too if I'm not mistaken, if you're looking for more specifics. But at any rate, let's get back to some more of the case studies here. Jeremiah, at 50 years of age, was one of our oldest volunteers. He had recently retired from decades of service in the armed forces and was beginning a new phase of his professional life by obtaining training in clinical counseling. He was also starting his third family, and he underwent a facelift halfway through the dose-response study. He was a busy man. During the first few minutes of his non-blind high dose of DMT, Jeremiah burst out in several exclamations. Whoa! Wow! Incredible! He began beaming. A huge smile came across his face. He seemed to be having a great time. And this is what he described. He said, quote, It was a nursery, a high-tech nursery with a single Gumby three feet tall, attending me. I felt like an infant, not a human infant, but an infant relative to the intelligences represented by the Gumby. It was aware of me, but not particularly concerned. Sort of a detached concern, like a parent would feel looking into a playpen at his one-year-old lying there. As I went into it, I heard a sound, a humming sound. 
Then I heard two or three male voices talking. I heard one of them say, He's arrived. I felt evolution occurring. These intelligences are looking over us. There is hope beyond the mess we are making for ourselves. I couldn't change the experience at all. I couldn't have anticipated it or even imagined it. It was a total surprise. I tried to open to love, but that was silly. All I could do was observe it. End quote. So that was the experience of this 50-year-old former military man. So Dr. Straussman says, I found this last comment especially interesting because it challenged my assumption that what Jeremiah encountered was a product of his mind rather than a true perception. Opening to love is shorthand for an effort to change the anxiety caused by an unexpected or unpleasant experience into love. If what Jeremiah had just encountered was only a product of his own imagination, he may have been able to alter his reactions. The fact that his attempt felt silly reminded me of the futility of trying to open to love to an, on, to an oncoming truck. Opening to love, as he found himself instantly dropped into an alien nursery, was such an ineffectual and inappropriate response that it seemed laughable. Several months later, Jeremiah received his double-blind 0.4 milligrams per kilogram DMT dose. At five minutes, he began, and he says, quote, That was much more intense than the first major dose. It's a different world. Amazing instruments, machine-type things. There was one person operating some of this stuff. I was in a big room. He was in another part of it. I feel a little shaky, a little hypersensitive. There are little tremors going through my body. So Dr. Straussman advises him, maybe closing your eyes might help. Here's Here, let's put a blanket on you too. Then this gentleman goes on and says, There was one big machine in the center with round conduits, almost writhing. Not like a snake, more like in a technical manner. The conduits were not open at the end. They were solid blue-gray tubes made of plastic. The machine felt as if it was rewiring me, reprogramming me. There was a human, as far as I could tell, standing at some type of console, taking readings or manipulating things. He was busy, at work, on the job. I observed some of the results on that machine, maybe from my brain. It was a little frightening, almost unbearably intense. It all began with a whining, whirring sound. I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks, to remind you that this noise phenomena is associated with astral projection by those who know about these things. So, is the mind, or the mind body, or the astral body of these people, is it leaving and experiencing something in some other plane, and somehow this connection is still kept to the conscious mind through the use of this substance, might be feasible, and I think that's what Dr. Straussman was looking for. He was looking for that connection. And as he pointed out, some of these experiences that these people have, they can't just chalk it up to their imagination. So there may be something more to this. And like I said, I suspect this whole thing has been relegated to the waste bin of history 
because those people at the top of the power structure in this world, these dark occultists who run things, maybe they're not comfortable with people coming close to some of what they may have mapped out in the past. Understanding the cause and effect relationship between the spiritual worlds and the physical world. Maybe they don't want people considering that there may be truths to this. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's an active suppression of this type of a thing. Of course, I do reserve the right to be wrong about that. Perhaps there are some people doing more further studies on this that I'm unaware of. Haven't seen or heard anything about it, though. Like I said, it's kind of something that was relegated to stoner culture. <laughs> and there you go. But let's continue on. We're going to try and wind it down a little bit here. So he says, Jeremiah's last double-blind session was the less overwhelming, but definitely psychedelic 0.2 milligrams per kilogram dose. At this session, he was surrounded by the orthopedic traction cage, but he denied that it bothered him. Josette was filling in for Cindy that morning as our nurse. At 10 minutes, he began, and he says, quote, there were four distinct beings looking down on me, like I was on an operating room table. I opened my eyes to see if it was you and Josette, but it wasn't. They had done something and were observing the results. They are vastly advanced scientifically and technologically. They were looking just over the traction bar in front of me. I guess they were saying, goodbye, don't be a stranger, end quote. Josette said that some of what Jeremiah described reminded her of some of her own weird dreams, and she went on to tell us about one of them. Jeremiah replied, That was a dream you described. This is real. It's totally unexpected, quite constant and objective. One could interpret your looking at my pupils as being observed, and the tubes in my body as the tubes I'm seeing, but that is a metaphor, and this is not at all a metaphor. It's an independent, constant reality. Josette collected the last blood sample and left the room, closing the door behind her. Jeremiah and I relaxed quietly together. DMT has shown me the reality that there is infinite variation on reality. There is the real possibility of adjacent dimensions. It may not be so simple as there's alien planets with their own societies. This is too proximal. It's not like some kind of drug. It's more like an experience of a new technology than a drug. You can choose to attend to this or not. It will continue to progress without you paying attention. You return not to where you left off, but to where things have gone since you left. It's not a hallucination, but an observation. When I'm there, I'm not intoxicated. I'm lucid and sober. End quote. So that was this Jeremiah. So he's saying that these are real experiences he's having. And he's not having a hallucination. He's totally sober. This is what he claims. That's what he says. This is the experience that some of these people have had. These are the things they've encountered. And like I said, I think it's fascinating, and I think there's something deeper to it than just than just a hallucinogenic effect from a drug. I think perhaps there's a reality that undergirds a lot of it, and it's something that deserves 
more scrutiny and more study, and it's not getting more scrutiny and study. Dimitri's session continued to fill out themes of testing and experimentation upon volunteers once the spirit molecule brought them into non-material realms. 26 years old, when he started in the DMT research, Dimitri was of Greek extraction. He lived with Heather, whose experience of unseen worlds we read about in chapter 12. He was a writer and editor and was a seasoned and steady explorer of inner space. He had smoked DMT about 60 times and had taken LSD hundreds of times, ketamine 50 to 100 times, and MDMA about 30 times. When they arrived in his room, Dimitri was casual about the day's schedule. I'm not too excited about this. I know it's just a low dose. Wait until tomorrow, I replied. Ten minutes after I injected this low dose, Dimitri said, It was pretty psychedelic, more so than I thought it would be. The next day, Dr. V and his assistant, Mr. W, joined us as guests. Dr. V worked for the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the agency funding my research. He was developing a project that might treat drug abusers with the African hallucinogen ibogaine. He wanted to see the effects of a powerful psychedelic drug given in a research setting. Mr. W. had been one of the most helpful people during my search through the regulatory labyrinth for human-grade DMT. I was happy to share with him the results of his assistance. Dimitri's partner, Heather, was with us that day, too. Add Dimitri, Laura, and me, and there were six in all. It was a crowd in room 531. Almost immediately after the injection was complete, Dimitri began breathing deeply and rapidly. He repeatedly sighed and yawned as if to dispel physical tension. At about nine minutes, he asked for some water and thanked us when we gave him a few sips. After wetting his mouth, he began. He said, quote, I feel like VM in a mild state of shock. I feel really shaky. Here's a blanket. Okay. Don't forget to breathe. There's a lot of energy being released. I asked Laura to go out into the hall and turn off some of the beeping equipment outside. Dimitri wasn't quite sure what we were doing. He decided to ignore the fuss. And then he said, The first thing I noticed was a burning in the back of my neck. Then there was this loud, intense hum. It was like the fan at first, but separate. It began engulfing me. I let go into it, and then wham. I felt like I was in an alien laboratory, in a hospital bed like this, but it was over there, a sort of landing bay or recovery area. There were beings. I was trying to get a handle on what was going on. I was being carted around. It didn't look alien, but their sense of purpose was. It was a three-dimensional space. I expected cartoon-like creatures, like a commercial for LSD, but this was, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it was unlike any other DMT experience I've had. They had a space ready for me. They weren't as surprised as I was. It was an incredibly unpsychedelic. I was able to pay attention to detail. There was one main creature, and he seemed to be behind it all, overseeing everything. The others were orderlies, or disorderlies. They activated a sexual circuit, and I was flushed with an amazing orgasmic energy. A goofy chart popped up like an x-ray in a cartoon, and a yellow illumination indicated that the corresponding system or series of systems were fine. They were checking my instruments, testing things. When I was coming out, I couldn't help but think aliens. I am so disappointed I didn't talk to them. I was confused and in awe. I knew that they were preparing me for something. Somehow we had a mission. They had things to show me, but they were waiting for me to acquaint myself with the environment and movement and language of this space. 
end quote. I'm going to pause again there. So once again, we see this connection to the alien abduction phenomena. Again, let's read on. The atmosphere in the room was surreal. It was bursting with people and a very strange story. I hoped Dr. V and Mr. W were all right. I also wondered if I might lose my funding the next week or see it doubled. It was like... It was not like any UFO abduction I've heard about. These beings were friendly. I had a bond with one of them. It was about to say something to me, or me to it, but we couldn't quite connect. It was almost a sexual bond, but not sex like intercourse, but a total body communication. I was filled with feelings of love for them. Their work definitely had something to do with my presence. Exactly what remains a mystery. And then... Dr. Straussman says, let's close this chapter with one of the most striking interventions performed on a volunteer by these other world beings. In Ben's experience, they not only tested and probed him, but also implanted something into his body. Ben was 29 years of age and had recently relocated from Seattle. He was a drifter, having held 30 jobs in just 10 years. He was an old friend of Chris, about whose entity contact encounter we just read. During one of his longest stints of employment, Ben had served as military policeman for two years. Ben was an intense fellow, short-cropped, neatly shaven head, a muscular build in a very direct manner. He actively sought novelty and change, so it's not surprising that in his written statement about why he wanted to participate in the New Mexico research, he replied, quote, I am an explorer, and I expect this would be an interesting experience, end quote. As with Dimitri, Ben's non-blind, low-dose DMT session was relatively powerful. His high sensitivity to DMT warned us that the next day probably would be one of the biggest psychedelic experiences of his life. I told him to be ready. While a little nervous the next day, Ben was eager for his non-blind high dose to begin. I spent a little more time than usual getting him ready advising him to try and take some big deep breaths as the DMT went in. You may take in a breath and have that be the last thing you remember. You may not even notice the out-breath. That means you're there. Ben tried to breathe deeply as the drug was going in. Then his breathing settled down as he obviously fell under the influence of the drug. His heart beat visibly in his chest. At about three minutes, his neck showed some hives, something that had also happened to several other volunteers who had truly astonishing stories to tell us later. At eight minutes, several total body spasms occurred, and he cleared his throat. It was time to try and ground him. We're going to put a blanket on you. Try to breathe into the tension if you can. He slowed his breathing and started calming down, a big smile on his face. He stayed silent for 36 minutes, longer than most of our volunteers, before I felt the urge to rouse him. Then he said, It started with a sound. It was a high-pitched, like a tightly taut wire. There were four or five of them. They were on me fast. As crazy as this sounds, they looked like saguaro cactus, very Peruvian in color. They were flexible, fluid, geometrical cacti, not solid. They were benevolent, but they weren't non-benevolent. They probed. They really probed. They seemed to know time was limited. They wanted to know what I, this being who had shown up, was doing. I didn't answer. They knew. Once they decided I was okay, they went about their business. 
His eyes were open, glazed, staring at the ceiling. He seemed unable to grasp what he had just undergone. I know it sounds incredible to you, to us, too, but it happens. Haltingly, as if he weren't really sure he wanted to tell us, he said, I felt like something was inserted into my left forearm, right here, about three inches below this chain-like tattoo on my wrist. It was long. There were no reassurances with the probe, simply business. Laura asked, was there any fear? He said, maybe at the onset, at just having my ego brushed aside. When they were on me, there was a little bit more confusion than fear. Kind of like, hey, what's this? And then, there, there they were. There was no time for me to say, who, who are you guys? Let's see some ID. There are surprising and remarkable consistencies among volunteers' reports of contact with non-material beings. Sound and vibration built until the scene almost explosively shifts to an alien realm. Volunteers find themselves on a bed or in a landing bay, research environment or high technology room. The highly intelligent beings of this other world are interested in the subject, seemingly ready for his or her arrival and wasting no time in getting to work. There might be one particular being clearly in charge directing the others. Volunteers frequently comment about the emotional quality of their relationships, loving, caring, or professionally detached. Their business appeared to be testing, examining, probing, and even modifying the volunteer's mind and body. Sometimes testing came first, and after results were satisfactory, further interactions took place. They also communicated with the volunteers, attempting to convey information by gestures, telepathy, or visual imagery. The purpose of contact was uncertain, but several subjects felt a benevolent attempt on the being's part to improve us individually or as a race. I was baffled and nonplussed by the sheer volume and bizarre nature of these reports. My crude and minimal response to volunteers' tales in this chapter clearly reflect my quandary. At first, I tried to avoid the pitfalls attendant to developing in any explanatory model, either for my benefit or for the, that of the subjects. After a while, however, we all needed to make sense of these types of sessions. As a clinical research psychiatrist, I entertain the idea that the regularity and consistency of these reports and the strength of the sense of reality behind them supported a biological explanation. We were activating certain hardwired sites in the brain that elicit a display of visions and feelings in the mind. How else could so many people report similar experiences? Insect-like reptilian creatures? I believe that these experiences were hallucinations, albeit rather complicated ones, simply products of brain chemistry brought on by hallucinogenic drug, like a waking dream. Several volunteers' eyeballs did rotate in their sockets during high-dose DMT sessions, reminding me of rapid eye movement sleep when dreaming occurs. Maybe DMT was inducing a wakeful dream state. However, research subjects tenaciously resisted biological explanation because such explanations reduced the enormity, consistency, and undeniability of their encounters. How could anyone believe... There were chunks of brain tissue that, when activated, flashed encounters with beings, experimentation, and reprogramming. Neither did suggesting that it was a waking dream satisfy volunteers' need for a model that made sense and fit with their experience. Many even prefaced their reports by saying, this was not a dream, or I couldn't have made it up if I wanted to. At a slightly more abstract level, I tried a psychological explanation. 
That is, these experiences were symbolic of something else, wishes, fears, or unresolved conflicts. However, these symbolic explanations weren't any more successful. Even gently persistent interpretations fell flat. How could these experiences reflect unconscious psychological issues like aggressive or dependent wishes? In some volunteers, the need to make sense of the strangest sessions was almost epidemic. Academic. It was just the drug. For others, however, this need took on pressing urgency. How could they have possibly undergone the experience they just did? Was it their imagination? How could their imagination generate a scenario that felt more real than waking consciousness? If it were real, how does one now live his or her life, knowing that existing right now are multiple invisible realms inhabited by intelligent life forms? Who are those beings? What is the nature of their relationship to the volunteers now that they had made contact? At a certain point, I decided to suspend my reductionist, materialistic, I-know-what-it-is approach. Not that doing so helped me feel any more comfortable with what I was hearing, but at least I no longer would risk making things worse by explaining away people's experiences as something else. Interpreting, explaining, or otherwise reducing their reports usually caused volunteers to shut down, and I knew I would be missing valuable and important pieces of the entire story if I couldn't encourage them to talk. So, as a thought experiment, I decided to act as if the worlds that the volunteers visited and the inhabitants with whom they interacted were real, as real as room 531, the hospital bed, the research nurse, and myself. There now was freedom to respond more empathetically and to see where it led. It also made it possible to start considering other ways of understanding research subjects' eerily consistent reports. Nevertheless, there were nagging... There was a nagging discomfort in taking this approach in responding to reports of contact. I begin wondering if I were starting a descent into some sort of communal psychosis. So did the volunteers. Upon hearing of similar encounters by their comrades at our post-study socials, several subjects decided to form a DMT support group that met every month or two. Their reason? I can't talk with anyone about these things. No one would understand. It's just too strange. I want to remind myself that I'm not losing my mind. And that's the end of the chapter, folks, and that's where we're going to leave it for tonight. So we have this phenomena that, of course, Dr. Straussman, using his scientific background, is explaining as just the effects of the drug. Some people, that's not a good enough explanation. And some of these other explanations aren't good enough. So Dr. Straussman took the stance that we'll treat these things as if these are real, invisible worlds. And you see how these experiences have altered people's perceptions of reality. And the thing is, I wouldn't think anything more of it were it not for the fact that this also touches upon things talked about by the occult fraternities in many of their old books that you can find, talking about these invisible worlds around us, and also the commonality of the experiences to the UFO abduction phenomena. You see, I think there's something more to it, and I think a lot of this has been actively suppressed and as everything in this world, they try 
to explain it away in some materialist phenomena, some hyper-materialist rationale. You see, it's just the effects of the drug on the chemistry of the brain and brainstem. That's all. It causes these hallucinations. There's nothing more to it, nothing beyond this physical, material world that we live in. And I think that's a wrong approach. And I think Dr. Straussman had good intentions here and was really trying to look at this from every angle possible. And it is a fascinating study because you see how people will describe these machine elves. They have a lot in common with alien abduction phenomena. So in my view, I think this deserves more attention, more scrutiny. It is a fascinating topic, but like everything else, I will urge you, take it all with a grain of salt. There's no way to really prove nor disprove any of this stuff. This is just data collected by Dr. Straussman and his interpretation of the data. And of course, I'm giving you a little bit extra data that it seems that these secret society groups and the occult fraternities over the course of the past few centuries, and probably the millennia, have been collecting similar data and have been mapping out these invisible worlds. This is what they claim. And maybe there's a connection here, and maybe this DMT can have an important role in the scientific mapping in the modern era of some of these phenomena. Or maybe there's nothing to it at all. Who am I to say for sure? Who am I to say for sure? But I do think it's fascinating, and I do think it crosses the bounds of coincidence that this is stuff that was pointed out by various of the occult fraternities in times past. And it's something that has been reported through the UFO abduction phenomena for some time now as well. So, with that being said, I think, once again, it's a fascinating topic that deserves, deserves a little more scrutiny and study, observation, and maybe we'll delve a little deeper and look into what the occult fraternities have to say about these spiritual realms around us. Anyway, folks, I want to thank you all for tuning in. That's all the time we have for tonight. We'll catch you next time. Have a good one. Come with me